0: Welcome back to another episode of Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Mike.
1: And my name's Allison.
0: Yeah, it is. And uh, welcome back. We haven't recorded personally in like a couple weeks, even though we've still kept our schedule of every Sunday releasing a new episode. Um, but uh, yeah, it's good to be back.
1: Yeah, we're back from Chicago.
0: Went there for my brother's um wedding shower. I yep. believe they're called.
1: He's going to be married in less than seven weeks. Yep, going to, back up there for the wedding.
0: Got to shower him with some gifts. And uh, as a matter of fact, the story that I'm going to tell today is from his future father-in-law, Pete. So, good morning, Pete.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we were talking. Mike's like penis. I was like, no, Mike.
0: Pete. Oh, great. Now he's going to listen to this and think that I call him no, penis.
1: No, you weren't calling him a penis. You were saying the word penis. Well, no, the
0: reason is you said, well, make sure Pete Pete is getting a shout out. You said Pete is and I was like penis and you're like Pete is and I was like <laughs> penis is. so sorry if you're listening to this with kids in the car
1: <laughs> and sorry that my husband is very immature, but I mean really let's talk about penises and vaginas. There. No, Mike okay. we okay. don't need to do that. We okay. all know about them.
0: Good, good. Um, So yeah, uh, they, they're very excited to bring the story to but uh, before we get going, if I may, uh, I'm going to talk about a recent acquisition that I have. Okay, and that is the Apple Watch.
1: Yes, welcome aboard. Thank we both you.
0: have them now. Good to be here. We uh, we went from Android to Apple on our smartphones a couple of years ago. I'm a big technology guy, so I've always been about the Android experience, the customability, customization. And, you know, as you get older and stuff, it's like, forget that. I just want something to work. So uh, I've been saving up for about two years and finally got myself an Apple Watch. It's just that my Fitbit before that was just not showing me the screen properly. wasn't giving me the right notifications. I couldn't see it in the Florida sun. That sucks. And I said, hey, you know, what the heck? Let's give it a shot. Yeah,
1: he hoarded all of his gift cards and used them all to purchase it, right? Isn't that what you did?
0: Yeah, it kind of hurt a little bit to use them all.
1: Yeah, Mike is uh, very frugal with the money, which is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to be because of your Amazon addiction. Yeah,
1: sure, sure, Mike, we sure. Have,
0: we have several $7 things coming in on a weekly basis.
1: Well, I'm getting ready for your brother and our future sister-in-law's wedding, yeah, so I gotta cool. be dressed properly.
0: Yep, and also our daughter is going to be a sweet little flower girl.
1: I'm a bridesmaid.
0: I'm the best man.
1: You sure are. And better man. Y- well, better Isn't that man. that right, Pop? <laughs> What's that from? Wedding singer. Wedding
0: singer. Yeah, it's a good, good movie. I'll check that out. <laughs> um but yeah excited for that uh, that wedding and everything but uh should be fun but yeah the apple watch has gotten me really into just you know trying to close these rings for activity getting a lot of my exercise in standing up every hour which is crazy
1: well i think it's good because you know sometimes when you start working and you're in the zone you don't move yeah but it's a good reminder like Ugh, i gotta get up and stretch my legs the thing
0: buzzes a little bit like hey you haven't been oh, up in the last hour
1: mine doesn't do that mine
0: gives a little nib mm-hmm. it's like it's like a nib it's like. that's smart like if you can feel that through the airwaves that's what it feels like like that a little bit louder so
1: Yeah, yeah so i'm excited for your story today
0: i am too so without further ado, let's jump into it. Uh, grab yourself a cup of coffee. Oh, and before we say this, if you enjoy this at all, please leave us a five-star review on Apple um, Podcasts. We really much appreciate it. And um, if you gave us like kind of a not-so-nice review, go ahead and change it a little bit. And uh, I-, I see there's one in there that gave us five stars. and like, yeah, you talk too much in the beginning. Blah, blah, blah. Well, we and do less now. So. I
1: mean, I do appreciate that. I Absolutely. appreciate the feedback. That's why we
0: have less talk now.
1: Yeah. And I do think we were probably rambling a little bit. So well, it's we, we really
0: get into each other. That's the problem.
1: We, I like you. Mike. I like you
0: too and we don't talk during the week we save everything for this
1: but other people don't want to hear that bs right. they they're here for the story so well, let's get to it let's do
0: it this is the story of northwest orient airlines flight 2501 it took place in june 23rd 1950 so before i get into it it kind of got me wondering about commercial air travel and just when it started cuz 1950 you know it's a long time ago and i was like well how much further was commercial airlines um, so on january 1st 1914 that was the world's first scheduled passenger airline service, took off from none other than St. Petersburg, Florida.
1: Really? Right
0: near us, and landed in Tampa, Florida.
1: You're kidding. No. That's a very, very short flight.
0: Yeah, very short.
1: I mean, the drive is probably only 20 minutes.
0: Not at that time. So I'm going to get into it. Okay. You settle your little haunches there, okay? I see you kind of trying to start thinking about things.
1: The wheels are spinning. Yeah.
0: So anyways, we're in a suburb of Tampa. And uh, so it landed in Tampa about 17 miles away. Only 17 miles and this is 1914, so cars aren't very fast at this point. You know, you're talking Model T type stuff. Um, so the St. P. Tampa airboat that was flown didn't, the, the whole thing didn't last long. It was only about four months, but it did pave the way for commercial flights today. Little background the fr- uh, first flight's pilot was Tony Janus. So Janus Live, Janus Landing. There's an actual oh. concert place in St. Petersburg called Janus Land or Live now. It used to be called Janus Landing. Uh, he was an experienced test pilot and a barnstormer
1: interesting what in the hell is barnstormer i
0: was hoping you'd ask that question it's a stunt pilot so even though you know there were no commercial flights they'd be flying those like you know red baron type planes and getting out and like jumping all over the thing and then getting back and flying the plane Oh my brave man yeah the first paying passenger was abram feel former mayor of saint petersburg and their flight across the bay took 23 minutes And like I said, they flew in a flying boat designed by Thomas Benoit, an aviation entrepreneur from St. Louis. So it was proposed to fly between St. Pete and Tampa. But at that time, uh, between the two cities, it took a steamship up to 12 hours Oh, uh, no, a steamship, two hours, and then 12 hours by train to get from St. Pete to Tampa. What the hell? Well, because there's that huge water, I, they probably didn't have a bridge at the time. So you'd have to go like way north, you know, like the Gandhi huh. Bridge and all those. Okay. Um. So yeah, I mean, we're just taking that for granted now. Interesting. Yeah, you had to go all the way around the water to get there. Now, traveling by car took about 20 hours. What? Yeah. So right now, if we like, we
1: have bridges everywhere.
0: Yeah, and if we drove to Chicago right now, that would take eighteen hours. Yeah,
1: so not even like seventeen. So yeah. that that's insane to me. Yeah,
0: I know. So so a
1: lot there's like a lot of little islands in Florida, and clearly that couldn't have been an island, or unless they had some sort of small bridge connecting it. I don't know. Is Saint Petersburg an island? No.
0: No. No. Nice try though.
1: I'm I'm an idiot. Yeah, you stop
0: talking. Just let me talk. Okay. It's kind of a peninsula.
1: Okay. It's peninsular i would say wow 20 okay. hours yeah
0: so nowadays like i said we drive from tampa to st pete to see the rays play for in about 45 minutes so thank goodness for cars and expressways but this flight took 20 minutes so the airline made two flights daily six days a week the fare was five bucks a person okay which is about 140 bucks in today's value um and five dollars per hundred pounds of freight if you wanted to take it with you tickets sold out 16 weeks in advance Holy cow. Yeah, so it was pretty popular. That's cool. Now, you remember it ended four months later. That's because all the snowbirds, we call them snowbirds, people that move down to Florida and then back up to the north.
1: They come here in the winter and go back to wherever they're from in the summer.
0: Yes. So they're, they're leaving the snow, coming here, then going back in the summertime. So anyways, I just thought that was interesting. interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Who knew? 1914, and who knew it happened in Florida? Not
0: me until I Sunny read this. Sunny Florida. And now the listeners of the Crime and Coffee Couple know that. So anyways, on the 23rd of June, 1950... Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501 was flying from New York's LaGuardia Airport to Seattle, Washington, when it disappeared into the night. So Northwest Airlines was a U.S. airline, which was founded in 1926 to carry U.S. mail. They began carrying passengers within the first year and then began offering international routes year after that. In 1931... The airline sponsored a test flight to Japan via Alaska to kind of scout out the route to mm-hmm. see you know, the best way to take it, make sure it was safe. After I wouldn't
1: this, want to be on any of those, like, guinea pig flights. Well, you had
0: to have some very courageous people.
1: I find I'm not courageous. You're
0: not. No, you're definitely not.
1: Like, when I watch Stranger Things, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't go in there. No,
0: safety is first for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you don't like bugs buzzing around your head. You don't like, you know, transatlantic flights uh, no. that have never been taken. Before. I
1: don't take test flights you, to
0: Japan. You wouldn't be on the Titanic, you know, no. that kind of thing. Mm-mm. So probably safer that way, I would say. Um, anyways, you know, they, they scouted out that thing. And after the Second World War, Northwest established a hub in Tokyo and uh, a service between Tokyo and the United States and Japan using a Douglas DC-4 airliner. As a result, they began to advertise themselves as, quote, Northwest Orient Airlines.
1: Okay, so initially they were just Northwest Airlines, and then when they started going over to Asia...
0: Yep, they became Northwest Orient. Got it. So the airline was merged into Delta in 2008, but Northwest continued to operate its own brand until 2010. Hmm. Okay, so the aircraft aircraft for Flight 2501 was a DC-4, which had been manufactured in 1943, seven years prior. It was originally operated by the U.S. Air Force and then by a Venezuelan postal operation, uh, you yeah, just hopping all over the joint, before Northwest bought the plane in 1947. The end of the war meant that a bunch of aircraft were sold to struggling commercial airlines. Um, it was used for a cargo service initially, but in 1950, a month before the crash, it was converted to a 55-passenger cargo coach aircraft. Okay. So the DC-4 was developed by Douglas after united airlines worked with them on the prototype for a four engine long range airliner um they initially came up with a dc4e E was experimental and then that led to the dc4 so the dc4 so now this um douglas um oh oh actually another thing here so you've probably heard of douglas um they 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 eventually merged with mcdonald oh, okay douglas. well
1: that's how i knew because i went to space camp i know that's
0: kind of strange yeah
1: when i graduated eighth grade and one of the sponsors was mcdonald douglas
0: yeah so mcdonald douglas at that time when you were young probably what 30 years ago <laughs>
1: well i don't know.
0: yeah actually probably us. Yes. yeah so 30 years ago at that time it was mcdonald douglas and now they were merged with boeing okay. so you know them as boeing now um, but anyways, the McDonnell Douglas DC 10 was the aircraft responsible for the deadliest aviation accident to have occurred in the United States with 273 fatalities, a flight from O'Hare to LA that crashed a m- less than a mile from takeoff because the left engine fell off.
1: O'Hare is Chicago. Just yes. if you, if you weren't sure of that. No, oh, okay. No, I'm just saying no, to the uh, listener. Absolutely. Oh, uh, we take for granted. We're from Chicago, but, um, I'm sorry. So it took, a. Uh, crashed how long after takeoff less than a mile after it took oh, off Oh man you said what happened
0: uh the left engine fell off jeez and it hadn't been they didn't look at like the maintenance reports and stuff it was pretty bad back in the day
1: so like a negligence thing yep um what year did this happen
0: um i don't have it written down here
1: you said it was the deadliest in the, i think
0: 1979 okay it, oh it, the I, year we were born yeah i think that's that, that kind of sticks out to me um so anyways yeah that that yeah, you know, DC ten, there, you know, that I DC ten always sticks in my head for some reason. It doesn't
1: n- it means nothing to me. Okay.
0: And then after that my morbidity got the best of me and I started looking, okay, well, if there was that crash, what was the worst one ever, right? So the worst crash involving one aircraft was in nineteen eighty-five, when five hundred and twenty people died in the crash of Japan Airlines Flight 123. Ugh. Then after that, well uh, not after before that, the most fatalities in any aviation accident in history was in nineteen seventy seven in Tenerife, which is an island in spain okay. near spain um and that killed 583 people when two boeing 747s collided on a runway
1: oh man so 747s, not even up in the air just no. on the ground yeah
0: one was landed one was coming in they collided what exploded. a mess yeah so luckily we haven't had a lot of those sort of things recently i mean there was um you know the malaysian flight that was lost but um yeah pretty bad stuff so anyways back to the original story the Flight 2501 was one of the DC-4 routes with service from New York City to Seattle. The aircraft was in good condition, and by all accounts, all the maintenance records looked fine. The flight crew who had flown the aircraft to LaGuardia reported it as, quote, mechanically okay before going off shift. Now mechanically okay, I would hope it would be spectacular or superb, but okay, I guess, is acceptable. Um, then the captain of Flight 2501 was Robert C. Lend. He was 35 years old. His co-pilot was Vern F. Wolf. And the only flight attendant or stewardess at the time was Bonnie Ann Feldman. Okay. Even though the flight took off in the Eastern time zone, uh, most of the times I'm going to use are in the central time zone because that's where the uh, believed accident happened. Okay. So at 3 45 PM that day, Northwest released a special thunderstorm forecast. It said scattered thunderstorms along and East of the cold front Bases at 3,000 to 4,000 feet, meaning that's kind of where it starts at the base, and with the top of the storms at 30,000 to 40,000 feet. So a huge storm. Um, with moderate to severe turbulence at all levels in the thunderstorm and moderate turbulence below the thunderstorms. So they are advising flights below 10,000 feet to proceed with caution, anticipating that activity at its peak would be around the hours of 10.30 p.m. on the 23rd to 4 a.m. of the next day, the 24th with possible squall line development ahead of the front during the evening. I'll tell you what a squall line is shortly here. So the flight crew arrived at the Northwest Flight Control Office at about 6 p.m., an hour before their scheduled departure. They talked about the weather situation. You know, obviously it's good to plan and figure out, okay, is it safe to go? What should we do? Got to have a plan going into it and uh, discuss it with the dispatcher and examine the reports given to them um, and looked at the hour-by-hour review and kind of what they thought would happen as the uh, storm comes in. The forecast was for the thunderstorms in the Detroit-Minneapolis area with moderate to severe turbulence above 10,000 feet and light to moderate turbulence below 10,000 feet. Now, I talk about turbulence a lot. Um, I've done some research in the past, and from everything I can find, turbulence was never, ever, ever The cause of any crash so if you're experiencing turbulence on a plane um it's normal and don't you know that that helped me kind of feel better about things if you know we've experienced some bad turbulence in the past
1: turbulence still freaks me out and i know you have told me that yeah but um, when we were on this fl- or both flights to and from Chicago, there was definitely some turbulence. And I'm always assuming we're just going to plummet.
0: Remember that one from Vegas? Like all the drinks were flying all over the place. People were
1: crying. Oh, my
0: God. And you were holding my hand. I'm like, no, it's fine. In my head, I'm like, oh, my God, I hope we make it out of this thing.
1: We're going down.
0: Yeah. yeah. You're like, is everything OK? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine.
1: I don't know why I'm looking at you as if you know.
0: I don't know. Yeah, I'm definitely not an airline pilot, <laughs> but I'm much closer after reading about. Yeah, this you
1: might as well start flying planes. Yep.
0: So, um, like I said, you know, chances of turbulence, um, there was also a risk of a squall line developing. So a squall line means that pilots anticipate possible heavy rain, hail, lightning, strong winds, and even tornadoes.
1: All right. And so they're leaving New York, they're going to Washington, Seattle, and they're, this, I- these issues are over Detroit.
0: Yes, and they they're kind of flying over these places. That was the the route that they're taking.
1: Okay, and it wasn't possible to kind of reroute.
0: No, not at this time. I guess there's like well known routes, and that was you know all in that area. Basically. Okay. All right. So, the captain and dispatcher decided on a cruising altitude of four thousand feet. So that's less than a mile or twelve hundred meters for those uh, overseas or not in the U.S. Um, so that seems terribly low for a transcontinental flight and especially by today's standards you're used to hearing like from a 40,000 foot view you know if you're talking about something generally it's like oh from a 40,000 foot view that's usually where planes fly now
1: wow and that that was only 4,000
0: yeah so you're comparing 4,000 to almost 40,000 so less than a mile compared to six or seven miles up in the air crazy or 12 kilometers so the flight route had them stopping over minneapolis minnesota And then at Spokane, Washington, before continuing direct to their destination, Seattle.
1: So they were making two stops before they hit Seattle? Yes. Okay.
0: And I guess that was the reason, primarily. So I didn't know if they were stopping or just flying over. So they were flying over Michigan to get to Minneapolis. Okay. Flying over yeah, Lake Michigan. Yeah, that would make sense. Yep. Okay. So at 6.45 p.m., Northwest issued a new forecast. But the New York dispatcher didn't receive it until after the flight crew of 2501 had left to check the aircraft. Um. So the 6:45 forecast actually predicted better weather than the 3:45 forecast. So the dispatchers like, well, whatever. They don't have to know these updates because it's actually better. So let they them. were
1: going anyway. This yeah. isn't going to change that. Yeah.
0: He didn't have to scramble and try to find them. He's like, it's better for them to be cautious. So the captain requested an altitude of 4,000 feet for the initial routing uh, to Minneapolis, but air traffic control did not approve it. They had other traffic flying on that level. Probably not a good idea to have uh, multiple planes falling on the same level in the same area.
1: No more collisions. Yep.
0: So the final flight plan had a cruising altitude of 6,000 feet all the way to Minneapolis. Okay. The pre-flight check was normal and no reason to think that there was anything wrong with the aircraft. Um, Flight 2501 departed LaGuardia Airport at 731 that evening with two flight crew, like I mentioned, and one cabin crew member. Uh, There were 55 passengers on board, including two families traveling with their children and three per- pregnant women, oh. unfortunately. Uh, one passenger was so late, he had almost missed the flight. Wish uh, he would have. Yep. The flight attendant had already closed the door and everything, and they are ready to go, but she opened it again. And then afterwards, she passed out pieces of Wrigley's Double Mint chewing gum before takeoff. I
1: guess they want to have fresh breath on that plane. Sure.
0: Yeah. Maybe that was one of those things. Who knows? So at 9.33 9 p.m., the Weather Bureau issued issued a regional forecast for the period 10 p.m. to the following morning, 10 a.m., So 12 hours, this forecast predicted widespread thunderstorm activity. And sure enough, described the development of that squall line extending from Southern Wisconsin, eastward into the lower Michigan and moving South. So pretty much covering all the Michigan shoreline on Lake Michigan, Um, you know, all the way to Indiana, which is, you know, the Indiana, Chicago, Michigan, kind of Southern point of Lake Michigan, Mm -hmm. as we know very well. So big squall line, huge, which is very, very dangerous right in front of a cold front. A lot of bad stuff happening at that point, that spot. Okay, so the southern edge of the squall line, like I said, was located like, yeah, right exactly what I just said. Look at that. I knew what I was going to say. So, regional forqu- forecasts were not routinely broadcast, and the flight advisory weather service man did not ask air traffic control to warn the flights about the squall line. Um,. Although the controllers had the information, they did not think to share the information for some reason.
1: What would have changed?
0: Um, nothing. What would, what would they
1: have done differently?
0: I mean, they, I, I, when they were in the air, they already knew to look out for one, possibly. So, I mean, now it's like definite that it's there. Yeah. Um, just same thing, really. Or same precautions. Uh, the meteorologist at Northwest wasn't convinced that the squall line prediction was accurate. So maybe that's why he's thinking. Okay, it might not be there. Don't get him too worried. But I mean,
1: <laughs> to me, be overcautious.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of things like this are why they're so cautious. Because it's like ultimately safety is more important, right, know, than anything. You know, and that that's why when uh, a flight is canceled, when I'm in the airport, and it's like no mechanical failures or something, I'm like, oh, that's fine. I'd rather be on the ground than be worried. Of course. So. Yeah, not sure why you know, he didn't agree with it, but uh, no one at Northwest advised the crew of the forecast. So Flight 2501 flew over Cleveland, Ohio at 9.49 p.m. The flight crew again requested a cruising altitude of 4,000 feet, um, which was now approved. So they're down to 4,000 feet. From
1: 6,000. hmm
0: Forty minutes later, air traffic control asked them to descend to 3,500 feet. Okay. Really 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 low
1: now at this point in time, because I know you say like currently the cruising altitudes are around 40,000 back in the 1950s what what was the average cruising altitude
0: uh, I think like 10,000 feet okay in that area. yep so an eastbound aircraft so a different aircraft uh flying at 5,000 feet was experiencing severe turbulence over Lake Michigan Really bad and struggling to maintain its assigned altitude. So up and down, thousands of feet.
1: Bouncing, bouncing. What a nightmare that would have been. Yeah,
0: no shit. So like things flying all around the place. I mean, at this point, it was barely pressurized cabins probably, you know, so it's it's a nightmare. Uh, Air traffic control estimated that the two aircraft would pass each other right around Battle Creek, Michigan. A little further inland, Mm -hmm. Uh, and the controller was concerned that the thousand-foot separation just wouldn't be enough because of the turbulence.
1: Well, especially if this other plane is bouncing up and down thousands of feet, is possible they're going to fall into their lane of um, height. I guess you could say. Yes,
0: one hundred percent. That's what he was worried about. So, like I said, it's it's a variance of thousands of feet, and you know you can have a wind shear or something and push it down, push it up, whatever. Yep, that's why all the jumping happens. So. Um, at 1051 p.m., Flight 2501 was flying over Battle Creek at 3,500 feet and reported that they expected to be over Milwaukee at 1137 p.m.
1: So they departed New York at 731 p.m. and they were only over this area three hours, three and a half hours later?
0: That's what it said. They go a lot slower at this time.
1: I mean, that's crazy. Yeah.
0: So um, they expect to be over Milwaukee at 1137 p.m., okay? The radio operator incorrectly copied this down at 11.27, 10 minutes earlier. Okay. So they would expect them 10 minutes earlier than they were supposed to be there. So remember that for a second from now. So at 11.13, the flight crew requested a cruising altitude of 2,500 feet. Very, very low. Shit. They didn't say why, and they did not declare an emergency or anything like that. Um from all accounts there's some you know with some of the, my sources they said that they were experiencing really rough turbulence and some electrical problems like you know the lightning and things of that nature um but they, you know there's no 100 percent certainty of what exactly was going on so um they requested the 2500 feet air traffic declined the request as there was other traffic at that level as usual um they must have been experiencing something to request that obviously the flight crew acknowledged the descent was not approved and the flight continued at 3,500 feet. That was the last communication from this flight. Mm. Knew that was coming. There, however, was a witness near South Haven, Michigan who experienced something right around this time. And I'll tell you about her a little bit. Um, on the other side of Lake Michigan, Northwest radio at Milwaukee became concerned. It was 11:37 PM, which was actually when the aircraft was expected to fly over Milwaukee. Um, When they expected to. However, according to his notes, he expected the flight at 1127. So, so they're
1: 10 minutes late at this point.
0: Yep. He contacted both Northwest and air traffic control to say that the flight was 10 minutes late. And obviously he's worried. He's like, where is it? What's going on? Let's communicate. It's really odd that the air traffic controller made this mistake because it's like right when it went dead. So this 10 mm-hmm. minute window is like right exactly when they didn't hear anything from before. I so. guess it's
1: just a strange coincidence. Yeah,
0: it's one of those things um 10 minutes later northwest radio still had not heard so they're already what 20 minutes late 30 minutes late at this point Uh, on 10 20 or 30
1: if if it was written down properly they'd be about 10 minutes late at this point but according to his notes 20 minutes late
0: correct so they were worried and you know preparing for the worst possibly but hoping for the best um you know hopefully something simple like communications failure um the controller broadcast that the flight should circle the range station in Madison, Wisconsin. It was one of those situations where like if your cell phone goes out, you're like, I don't know if you can hear me, but I can't hear you, and here's what you should do. You know, meet me at the grocery store or whatever. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, and the fact that they're late is a problem because they're now no longer able to communicate and now they have the potential of colliding with another plane. Right. That's scheduled to land at that time.
0: And the air traffic controller at the next place needs to know so that you can tell people where to fly. Right. Yep. So Meanwhile, all FAA radio stations in the Chicago Minneapolis area attempted to contact a flight on all frequencies. So everybody's freaking out. They're like, "Hello, hello, hello. You know, flight 2501, where are you?" And you know, no you, response. You, nothing. Northwest contacted Chicago Air Traffic Control who altered the Air Sea rescue facilities in the area or alerted, sorry, the Air Sea rescue facilities in the area at 11:58. Responders included the Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, and also the Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin police uh, and Indiana So tons of people get into action right now. They're basically like, we got a flight that's gone. Uh, We have no idea where it is. Probably something bad happened. Let's go try to find what's going on here.
1: Right. But then they're also probably sitting there waiting to hear of like, oh, my gosh, this plane crashed into all these homes and whatever. Yeah.
0: Got no calls about anything happening. Right. And that's all silence. Yeah. Yeah. Besides this one woman that's like, you know, not even this woman called. She didn't call 911. She thought, I'll tell you about her. She basically heard an airplane. So it's like, okay, just heard a loud airplane. So nobody, yeah, calling about anything, no explosions, nothing happening like that, because it happened, you know, over Lake Michigan. So um, by dawn, unfortunately, they didn't hear anything still. Everyone knew the worst-case scenario had likely happened. Um, by this ca- time, they'd be out of fuel. Um, they would not be circling anymore. <sighs> so sad. Yeah. Um, the airplane must have crashed. So search and rescue operations started searching the foggy Lake Michigan as soon as the sun came up. Now Lake Michigan's not exactly clear. Yeah, we used to be live in Chicago. We've gone to Lake Michigan from, Michi- from Michigan, from Indiana, from Chicago. It's it's you know it's not super, yeah, not super dirty, but it's not the cleanest kind of lake. Um, yeah, you know, kind of a lot of dirt in, involved there. So, um, I'm going to read an excerpt from the New York Times, uh, dated June 25th, 1950, out of Milwaukee, uh, a Northwest Airlines DC-4 airplane. With fifty-eight persons on board. Last reported I thought o-
1: it was fifty-five.
0: Um uh, Yeah, well, fifty-five passengers, three
1: crew Oh, okay. My my bad. I'm okay. sorry.
0: Last reported over Lake Michigan early today was still missing tonight after hundreds of planes and boats had worked to trace the aircraft of any survivors. All air and surface craft suspended search operations off Milwaukee at nightfall, except the Coast Guard Cutter Woodbine. The airline, uh, the airplane, a four-engine air coach bound for New York to Minneapolis and Seattle was last heard from at 1.13 o'clock this morning, New York time. So that's Eastern time. I'm just reading the exact quote. And when it reported that it was over Lake Michigan, having crossed the eastern shoreline near South Haven, Michigan, the craft was due over Milwaukee at one twenty-seven a.m. Eastern um, at Minneapolis at 3.23 a.m. If all aboard are lost, the crash will be the most disastrous in the history of American commercial aviation mm. at this point. The plane carried a capacity load of 55 and a crew of three, headed by Captain Robert Lind, 35 years old. Um, And Northwest Airlines said the craft was presumed to be down and that they were beginning notification of relatives of passengers. In his last report, Captain Lind requested permission to descend from 3,500 to 2,500 feet because of a severe electrical storm. So this is the only proof that there was anything you know we don't know why everybody that was asked doesn't know why but this in the new york times i don't know if they've made this up but they said because of a severe electrical storm which was lashing the lake with high velocity winds uh, permission to descend was denied by the civil aeronautic authority which is now the faa because there was too much traffic at the lower altitude they searched until sunset but there was no sign of the aircraft at all no wreckage debris oil etc wow
1: i mean the fact that there was nothing no sign of anything so everything must have stayed intact in terms of like you said there's no oil no debris so it sounds like maybe the plane didn't hit the water very hard and it literally just sunk
0: that's what they're thinking at that point uh but things have changed okay. so the following morning the search efforts were expanded to include an underwater search so sure. it's like another day afterwards um they loaded the boats with sonar equipment sent divers down with strong sonar contacts. Lake was about 150 feet deep in these locations. Uh, the lake bottom was covered by a layer of silt and mud. So, you know, pretty much you couldn't go down to the silt and mud level. I'm sure the aircraft was in there somewhere, maybe. Um, but the silt and mud was about 30 to 40 feet deep by itself. So absolutely no visibility for 30 to 40 feet. Wow. Uh, visibility itself outside of the silt line was less than eight inches.
1: Whoa. So
0: put your hand in front of your face like that is nothing.
1: That's really <laughs> foggy. Like, I don't know. I guess like it's, I'm thinking it's like it's a
0: lot of mud and dirt. Okay. And stuff. It's just kind of it's not a
1: I'm thinking, obviously, we live off of the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's very clear.
0: Yeah. Totally different type of water. So everybody knew that the chances that they would find the aircraft that night was very slight, but they continued anyways. Uh, they had to. Yeah. I mean, what else? People are freaking out. and <laughs> People just want to know. Yep. They even uh, dragged the entire area with grapnel hooks in the hope of pulling something up to the surface, like just kind of luck, right? Basi- basically fishing for an aircraft. Yeah. I mean, just throwing hooks down there and hoping obviously,
1: to like literally hook it like a fish. Right.
0: Like uh, gigantic hooks, you know, mm-hmm. um, but just no luck. Um, that evening, after 11 hours of searching, a U.S. Coast Guard cutter discovered an oil slick oh, okay. on Lake Michigan, about 18 miles north northwest of Benton Harbor right where the southern edge of the squall line was uh, from the crash meteorological reports confirmed with 100 percent certainty that a squall line was located there at the time the aircraft was believed to have crashed okay so very very dangerous weather terrible stuff we don't know exactly what lightning hail winds, winds. And all sorts of stuff
1: you even said the potential for like a tornado
0: absolutely so could be anything at this point And that's why when you hear about, you know, airlines delaying because of storms, they don't want to get caught up in this shit. So the next time you're in an airplane and and it's like, you know, something's canceled because of weather. That's why.
1: Right. And and again, it is like, oh, man, we're going to be late to our destination, blah, blah, blah. But again, safety is first. I know it's annoying to be inconvenienced, but you want to arrive alive.
0: Amen. So. The U.S. Coast Guard also found the aircraft logbook floating in the water.
1: Okay, so there is a sign. Yes. Because at this point in time, it it was like nothing. There was nothing.
0: Yeah, so they're finding stuff now. Okay. And unfortunately, they find some more stuff, which is pretty uh, unfortunate. It
1: it is unfortunate, but they do know that that plane went down. Right. There wasn't enough fuel. Clearly, it had to have gone down. We just want to find these people so that they can be put to rest.
0: Yep. Further floating fragments were found in the area, but they could not find the aircraft wreckage. Jeez. So basically anything that could float, they found. Sure. Uh, they scoured the lake and the surrounding areas for another day with no luck. After four days, the Navy gave up their search and said the difficult conditions and we're just not finding. It's basically trying to find a needle in a haystack here. We have no, you know, it's the old days. They don't have the sonar that we have now. It's It's a tough situation. Um, the Coast Guard and aircraft flying in that area continued to watch for any sign in case something popped up, you know, from floating and, uh, the official search was over. The only pieces of the aircraft, which were recovered, like I mentioned, were things that could float foam, rubber cushions, armrests, clothing, blankets, pillows, luggage, a fuel tank float, cabin lining, plywood flooring, and other wooden parts. So there's no sign of fire on any of these things which was interesting. Uh, The cushions and armrests were shredded from the impact, which means that the aircraft must have struck the water at high speed. Mm -hmm. Uh, When something's traveling that fast in the water, I mean, it's kind of like concrete. It's like running into a wall, basically. If they go straight down into the water, it's like hitting a wall.
1: Well, that's what kills people when they jump over a tall bridge. Right. It's the force of hitting the water.
0: Yep. The worst part, uh, body parts began to wash up on the shore of Lake Michigan.
1: So sad.
0: Could you imagine going to the beach and man
1: i mean i would think they would close the beaches where potential for something like this to wash up was yes
0: they did um some were described as shredded Aww. so just like completely like torn apart like just ugh, and the fact
1: that it. it's body parts
0: yep coast guarded officials initially believe there must have been a terrible midair explosion to disintegrate the body so badly like they were really torn apart so but like, you
1: said there was no signs of fire on the things right
0: so that kind of dispelled that You know, as they're finding more things, they kind of, you know, we know all about it now, but that was kind of part of the story. So like you mentioned, the popular Michigan tourist destination called South Beach, um, not Miami, but in Michigan was forced to close because of the large number of body parts that washed oh. in. Just, oh, can you imagine? Like, and then that's news in the area. Like, don't go to the beach. There's pieces of people's bodies.
1: And who would want to swim in that water anyway it's after so hearing about that? That's just so tragic.
0: Are you going to be the first person back in the water, you know, knowing? That I know. Disgusting. I mean, just terrible, terrible situation. But years later, two unmarked grave sites were identified, which are believed to hold the remains of flight crash victims, which washed ashore. So people are finding things and just like burying them kind okay. of like kind of like nice citizens, I guess, just kind of taking care of things. Uh, yeah, I, it's kind of a it's a little bit of a mystery who's doing this stuff.
1: So wait, what would they be burying? Body parts. Oh, wow. I'm surprised I wouldn't just call somebody. Yeah. I would never take it upon myself to just bury a body part. I wouldn't either.
0: But meh, who knows? I don't know. Maybe this is such a terrible situation they felt like they were doing a favor or something like that because you can't identify the person at this time you know it's just kind of like okay let's try to help them and you know give them a memorial the best we can
1: and and they're burying them where in a specified location
0: um two unmarked grave sites um somewhere near the shore huh yeah um they were buried quickly and quietly as only small pieces were found no intact bodies one is a mass grave oh in a cemetery near saint joseph and the other in lakeview cemetery in south haven both sites now have markers in the memory of the victims, So okay. at least it's some closure for the people saying, you know, at least they can go pay their respects. Yeah. yeah, you know, which, which I thought is, is nice. Uh, the only debris offering any information about the flight was a plywood oxygen bottle support bracket. The bracket had been installed on the forward left of the fuselage, which meant that the impact force, which ripped it off must have been forward, downward and to the left. Okay. Um, the Tribune quoted an unknown source from Douglas aircraft company company who guessed that the aircraft maybe turned onto its back, uh, which I can't, can you imagine being like on an upside airplane? down? Yes. Jeez. Because maybe they got into like some kind of wind shears or, you know, with hail and then they got, you know, kind of thrown off a course and they couldn't figure out which way's up and down. Sure. Yeah. Now, they wasn't just kind of throwing it out there. He said there were eight cases of this happening in high winds. So they know factually that there's eight cases of airplanes that turned upside down. Could you imagine being on an airplane that turned upside down? Like, no,
1: hanging from your seatbelts. No,
0: that sounds like an absolute nightmare. I mean, the, this whole thing is a nightmare. But however, usually the flight crew usually had enough to, height to recover in those situations.
1: But in this case, they were so low. Correct.
0: 3,500 feet. And they said, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention something here a little bit later that'll kind of talk about that, too. Um, flights that crossed the Southern Lake Michigan area shortly before and after the aircraft disappeared reported moderate to severe turbulence and frequent lightning. Hmm. Uh, several flight crews from around the storm uh, flew around the storm by flying to the south, which makes a lot of sense. Like well, the squall line is here, so go fly go further fly down. fly
1: around the wall. Right,
0: right. Um, maybe they just didn't have enough information. Um, three flights turned back, refusing to carry on in the severe turbulence at the edge of the storm. And one of the pilots reported that he couldn't fly over the storm because it was over 30,000 feet.
1: Sure, it was too too wide yep. or high, whatever. Right,
0: right. Well, yeah, and there's an axis, you know, that's why it's so hard, part of being so hard. It's like up, down, forward, backward, left, right, mm-hmm. and, and up, down, like, you know, that's it's a huge axis. It's not just X, Y, it's X, Y, Z all around. Exactly, all around. Yeah. Um, in 1950, this was the deadliest commercial airliner accident that the U.S. ever experienced. The FAA in charge of the investigation could not determine a probable cause, not a definitive probable cause. They have a lot of ideas.
1: Well, the squall, the storm.
0: Yep. Um, The mystery continues to this day. The plane struck the water with considerable force. We know that for sure. Uh, It's possible there was a mechanical failure mid-flight. But the aircraft appeared to be in good condition. And, you know, there's obviously you can think it's in good condition, but they, they actually did their checks like they were supposed to.
1: But the fact that they went down right where the storm was tells me it wasn't mechanical. It tells me that the storm forced them down.
0: Absolutely. If there was something mechanical, the flight crew would have reported it. So I mean, oh, now we have trouble on the engine or yeah. whatever it might have
1: been. It's too coincidental that it happened right where the storm was. Right.
0: Absolutely. So, um, remember that witness I mentioned earlier? Yes. So, Jackie Eldred was her name. Jackie Eldred was in her home when she was woken up by a roar. Just a big... (laughs) Understandably, she was freaked out. So, she woke up her husband and toddler. Her statement, quote, It sounded like a plane came over our house, and it went away, and then it came back again. Hmm. It was lower and louder every time it came back. I woke my husband up. All of a sudden, there was a big bang, and I screamed. So, she heard a big bang which you would think would be the the plane hitting the ground you near know, the water
1: how far off of the water was her home
0: uh her home was a quarter mile off the shoreline
1: and was it not a lot of other homes nearby that nobody else heard what she heard
0: that's the weird thing this is the only person that has anything about that that i found mm-hmm. you know maybe there was others and you know this is the con- only confirmed that that i could find so now it was interesting. I looked at this on Reddit. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from Reddit of, from somebody who supposedly is you know, knows about this kind of stuff. Um, I thought this is a really interesting post that could explain what happened here. So it's interesting. Um, the original poster of the Reddit thread was guessing the plane was struck by lightning. So they, they kind of posted about the story and they're like, I guess I'm guessing it was lightning and, you know, just uh, educated guess, I guess. And um, the commenter which their, their name is deleted now, so I can't tell you who it is. But they said, with respect, it wasn't the lightning. It could not have been the lightning. Aircraft, large and small, get hit by lightning every single day and not a single one crashes. Even back then, aircraft could take a lightning strike without serious issues. If anything, old planes were more likely to survive a strike unscathed than the newer ones. Lightning has literally zero ability to get into the engines and blow up a plane which I found.
1: I mean, it would make sense. They'd be designed that way. We're flying in the friggin' sky,
0: right? It's like, you know, that's where lightning is. You want to make sure yeah. it's,
1: I'd probably never get on a plane again. If a bolt of lightning was going to take it down.
0: Yep. And he said at worst, or that this person said at worst, it'll scramble the avionics, but every aircraft ever manufactured has features by which the pilots can handle that. Even if it means they have to make a precautionary landing and older aircraft like this didn't have many avionics. So if anything, it would be less prone to lightning damage. So they say the biggest danger an aircraft faces in a thunderstorm is wind shear. Now, do you remember that? Wind shear? I mean, you were flying recently from Chicago? Yes, and we couldn't
1: land in Tampa Airport because of the wind shears. Yes,
0: there was a lightning storm coming in, and they said, oh, due to wind shear, we have to circle around the airport. And we were like, oh, wind shear. Okay. That was like one of my first times hearing wind shear. Yeah,
1: and he specifically said, we don't want to get into those wind shears because it's not pleasant. Right.
0: So... I thought that was really timely here. So anyways, I'm back to the comment. Aircraft wings produce lift by moving against the air. And the faster they move in relationship to the air, the more lift they create. Of course. So the higher they go. Makes sense. This means if an aircraft has a headwind, it can fly slower in relation to the ground than if it has a tailwind. Sure. If it has a tailwind, it has to fly faster, which is why it's faster to fly from the west coast to the east coast.
1: It's literally pushing you. Yep. This is
0: why air- aircraft always take off and land into the wind and why airport runways... Always must be situated according to the prevailing winds, which I didn't know.
1: It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, so they had they can control it more. It's it's really interesting.
1: It makes perfect sense,
0: and that's why you can't you don't always land in the same spots. So, um, depending on the wind. But what happens if the wind suddenly shifts without warning from a headwind to a tailwind? Suddenly, the aircraft loses lift and can even go into what's called a stall, and the aircraft will drop in altitude. If the aircraft is at too low an altitude to recover, it will crash.
1: And we were at 3,500.
0: Yep. That kind of sudden change in wind direction is most commonly found in the vicinity of thunderstorms. Okay. Which is what happened to us. There was a thunderstorm there, and the thing could stall out. And that happened to your aunt, too, remember? Um, your aunt said it felt like she dropped, like, 20,000 feet at one point. So uh-huh. they were probably flying through a thunderstorm. It probably stalled, and they recovered. Oh, you know, like so <laughs> scary. So it, and it, that's standard for an airline pilot. You know, unfortunately, but, you know, luckily they're trained. Anyways, back to this comment. Another form of wind shear caused by thunderstorms is the microburst. Okay. Microbursts are strong downdrafts that can shove an aircraft down hundreds of feet with no warning. Nobody knew they existed in 1950. Hmm. So that's, yeah, it's something you're flying into. You have absolutely no idea. The pilots would have been helpless if they encountered one at a low altitude. It's basically shoving you down into the water, saying goodbye, right? So the comment goes, in that part, the low altitude is, I think, the key to what happened in Northwest Flight 2501. The pilot asked to descend to 2,500 feet and was denied, but that doesn't mean he didn't descend, Oh, which is a great point. I never thought of that.
1: I mean, why would you descend into a zone that they're telling you don't descend to because you might think, I'm going to crash into another plane.
0: You balance the pros and cons. You look at the current situation and you're like, we are going to die here. So we have to do something.
1: So you're rolling the dice. Right.
0: So he's thinking, I mean, this, this commenter is thinking he probably went down to 2,500. Okay. Uh, could have anyways. Um. At the time air traffic control didn 't have any kind of secondary radar that could tell the controller where they actually were. Um, I doubt the controller um, I doubt the controller here even had primary radar, which shows only the plane 's location um also at this time pilots were accustomed to making their own decisions most of the time you know they thought the shit didn't stink and Mm -hmm.
1: it's (laughs) like i'm flying this plane well and you
0: know you watch those movies where it's like the pilot oh my gosh look at the pilot and catch me if you can you know with uh, leonardo dicaprio he pretends he's a pilot and all of a sudden people are fawning over him Mm -hmm. like one walks by you on the sidewalk and they're like oh my god a pilot look it's like a you know movie star Mm -hmm. basically so um it may be that the pilot of Flight 2501 decided to descend against the air traffic controller's orders so he would avoid a situation he believed posed an imminent threat, like we talked about, only to find himself too low and avoid fatal wind shear or a microburst. Mm-hmm.
1: And then pushed him down into the water. Yeah, he had
0: to make a decision at the time and figured, ugh, we got to go with it. Yeah. Now, this is interesting. The witness's statement, oddly enough, is in accordance with this theory. Microburst winds move sharply downwards and then outwards in waves. So they're perfectly capable of carrying sound for miles and miles. Hmm. So if the aircraft had crashed five miles offshore in the middle of a microburst, you'd expect a witness to hear exactly what she heard. Uh, The engines faintly, then loudly, then faintly, then loudly, just as if the aircraft were circling overhead, followed by a loud boom caused not by an explosion, but by the aircraft hitting the water. Hmm. So another possibility he mentioned was hail. Hail can mess up an aircraft. It can smash the windshield, the nose, the cone, tear holes in the fuselage. Damage antennas. I mean, this is all things why they don't fly (laughs) into these things. So I mean, we we all have to keep these in mind here. Um, It's possible the aircraft flew into a hailstorm was so damaged it couldn't fly um, or the pilots became disoriented. But this is probably unlikely because even they were kind of even back then they were trained how to handle hail and doubly so in this case, because that kind of hail isn't particularly common around Lake Michigan. It's called Alberta hail. Okay. So That was the end of that comment. I thought it was really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. It had some good theories. Um, Over 60 years later now, the aircraft still hasn't been found. Wow. Yeah, pretty sad. Um, The Michigan Shipwreck Research Association has searched Lake Michigan for the aircraft wreckage every year for over a decade.
1: Because that's what I was wondering. Obviously, our technology wasn't as good back then, but now with the sonar materials that we have, it surprises me that they've yet to find it.
0: Yeah, and people are still wondering about it. I mean, you know, it came up in conversation with Pete. Yeah, that was one where it was like, hey, do this one. I found it really interesting. Now we should be able to find it, you would think. I mean, unless it's under so much dirt and stuff that you just wouldn't Still, I don't know. You would still think. Well, if it's under mud, I I don't know. I don't know how sonar works, so uh, who knows. But um. Yeah, they Even if they did find the wreckage, they won't find a black box because in 1950, aircraft didn't carry them, uh, at least commercial aircraft. They're most likely to salvage the four massive 14-cylinder engines, if anything at all. Like, my car has six cylinders, so <laughs> four massive 14-cylinder engines. Um, it seems like we'll never know exactly what happened to Flight 2501, but supposedly there's still a search going on right now, being led by Valerie Van Heest. Hmm. She wrote a book about the flight called The Fatal Crossing and which actually has four and a half stars on Amazon, hmm. and it's led to multiple searches, which uh, just only turned up ten shipwrecks, but no aircrafts, hmm. and that's where uh, where we
1: in wow. the story. Wow, crazy.
0: Yeah, so aircrafts man that's you know they're they're one of the safest ways to travel and that's you know these stories like this are why people are so freaked out
1: right of course you hear these horror stories and you know when you're on an airplane and something goes wrong it's not like you can just pull the car over you know what i'm saying you're you're in the air
0: you don't have control of it it's scary it's some especially a control freak that wants to, you know i want to drive i want to be in control And sure you can't you know, control the other people on the road, but in the airplane, it's like, you're just sitting there hoping for the best. You're
1: just praying for the best. And that's why when people are like travel safely, it's like, Oh, I'll tell the pilot.
0: <laughs> right. I have no choice.
1: <laughs> I'm just going to sit in my seat. Right. Watching some Netflix.
0: Yep. So,
1: well, thanks for covering that. That was interesting. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, it was, you know, there, there, uh, once you go into that, there's so many other areas you can get into and just like, you know, look at all the, yeah, I, I looked at the Malaysian flight and everything and, you know, found that they found some pieces and yeah, it's like anytime there's a flight thing, it's, you know, people are really
1: bothered by it. Well, oh, it's just so sad. You know, you're saying goodbye to your loved one. All right, well, I'll see you later this evening when you land. Yep. And then they just never arrive. It's just, it's so tragic.
0: Yeah, it's terrible. So, um, uh, well, before we go, Hey, I want to say thank you so much to our Patreons. If you want to become a Patreon member, you'll hear a new bonus episode with uh, no advertisements every other week. So, uh it is every two weeks right
1: it's every two weeks and this week is another one yes we'll be recording one right after this yeah
0: in a few seconds we'd
1: love it if you joined us
0: thank you to the patrons lily karen nadine ali susan michael kayla s and kelly
1: you guys are awesome yeah we appreciate you very much and thank you all for being here and listening to this story and we will catch you back next time Bye.
0: bye